We all come with our faith, and hopefully that faith is based on something that is rock solid, has a foundation. You know, today, faith is something that doesn't need a foundation. Many today are just saying, have an experience. Did you touch something? Do you believe something? As if faith has no basis. It's a leap into an abyss. It's a leap of faith into the dark. But the Bible says, faith has a foundation. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. And whenever we walk by faith, it means we walk in accordance with the instructions, with the information that we find within the word of God. God doesn't speak to us directly, so how do I know what pleases him and what doesn't please him? Well, I have to trust in the truth, the word of God, which gives us the basis for knowing that we have confidence in our walk before him. The Bible says in John 17, 17, sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth. So whenever I read this word, then I can know that I'm pleasing to God. And I can know that I know. In fact, in 1 John, he says, I write to you because you know the truth. There are so many times in the scriptures that people were written to, and he says, I wrote these things down so that you can share in this knowledge of the truth. You can know the truth too. My friends, the whole point of walking by faith That is a confidence or an assurance of things hoped for, a conviction about things not seen. That's what the Bible says faith is. In Hebrews 11, verse 1, how can we have that conviction? How can we have that knowledge? How can we have confidence in our walk? Is it because we just trust in our experience? No, it's because we've read the Word of God and it instructs us, it informs us about what is pleasing to God. And that is how We can walk by faith. We can walk in confidence because of the word of God. It's a light unto our feet. It's a a guide to our path. But so many religious people today, they're turning away from the word of God. How do you know you believe? How do you know? Well, I just did. Like it's it's just a, a choice. Well, I'm glad you're one of those people that have that choice gene we talked about the other night. You know, psychologists are starting to say, that religious people have a, have a religious gene that causes them to be able to, to make such confident movements without any basis for it. That's goofy, you know, that really is. The Bible tells us that it has the evidence for us to have confidence. Jesus, whenever he's here, he says, search the scriptures. And those were the scriptures that existed at that time, the Old Testament. He said, you search the scriptures. For they are they that testify of me. Jesus pointed to evidence. He pointed to evidence. When John was wondering about whether Jesus was the Christ, he was in prison. He couldn't see. He told those disciples of John, you go back and tell him this. You go back and tell him the hungry are fed, this, that, and the other. And why? Because he knew that was the evidence that John needed in order to have faith that he was the Christ. You see, our faith is not based on experience, it's based on evidence. And yet today, we are failing as the church to recognize how important it is for us not to provide people with a religious experience, but we are here to defend the truth of the word of God. The Bible says in Timothy, I want you to look at a passage right quick with me. If you have your scriptures, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Oh, excuse me. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Got the wrong one. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Timothy, I'm writing to you, and you're going to pass on this information to people who need to know how to conduct themselves in a way which pleases God, how to conduct themselves in the household of God. Notice, which is the church of the living God. Now I'm reading from New American Standard if it reads a little bit differently, but listen very carefully. 
the pillar and support of the truth. The pillar and support of the truth. You know there's no other foundation for the truth other than the fact that Jesus is the chief cornerstone and it's based on the apostles' doctrine and that which is revealed by the Holy Spirit. He shall come to you, John 14 through 16. Jesus promises Holy Spirit. He, should, he will remind you, that is you apostles, of the things that Jesus taught whenever he was here and that was going to be the foundation from upon which the church is based. And the church was going to grow up with a responsibility, as I said, not to provide religious experience, but to provide the information people need to know how to conduct themselves properly in the house of God and in Christian living as well. But he says, you're supposed to be the pillar and support of the truth. That's right. We're supposed to be the pillar and support of this thing that covers us, which is called truth. Truth. I want to talk just a little bit. Now, it, my introduction is long tonight, so stay with me here. <laughs> you know, a while back I studied what they call postmodernism. And postmodernism is an idea. It's a, it's a worldview. It's a paradigm, they call it. Now, I had to look that one up. But anyway, what is all that? Well, you know, back whenever people believed truth existed, our main responsibility was to find it. I want to find the truth. Just tell me the truth. Somebody said, you can't handle the truth. Yes, I can handle the truth. We need the truth. And we wanted that. And so our entire culture in the last generation, in its seeking for truth, has done some amazing things. We made a commitment to empirical truth whenever it come to natural sciences. And because of that, with experimentation, we did really great things. We've discovered uh, how diseases were spread and, and how to feed a lot of people and how to do a lot of things. And we thought, oh, that's just amazing. Truth really is going to set us free. But then somebody took one step too far. They just slapped that big toe over the line just a little too far, and they said, truth... Science is going to be the savior of humanity. And it wanted to take the place of God. And so it raised its head and says, listen, if you follow me, I will cure all your diseases. I will give you the best way to organize a government. I will answer all issues about morality and crime. I will solve the, the everything and a brave new world will be upon us, as Al Huxley once said. And as we saw on Star Trek, for all of you who are Trekkies, I know you. Yeah, we thought everybody's going to have a one world federation and we're going to go through spreading the peace of all mankind. Let's just all get along. Did that happen? No. <laughs> it did not happen. We found out that scientists can be hypocritical and reports can be bought. And we have scientists then taking up both sides of issue. Smoking is great for you. Doctors smoke these cigarettes <laughs> and found this is good for you. And somebody comes along and says, what are you doing? That is 100% against the truth. And today, you can almost find scientists or those who believe they have the truth on both sides of any issue. And so what happened was a credibility problem because all the diseases weren't whipped. Hunger continued on in the world. Race problems continued on in the world. The governments, they continued to exist and they found out people, if you offered them certain kinds of, of that they didn't want that, they wanted this, what they were familiar with and just, just all kinds of stuff. And so people, it didn't change anything. And then came along post-modernism. Modernism is the idea that, that we could follow the Messiah of truth, that is a scientist, and they will solve all the world's problems. But then came the realization, it ain't gonna happen. So what happened then? Post-modernism says, we don't know who's right and who's wrong. We can't trust anybody today. And so here's the deal. If you want truth, you're going to have to construct it for yourself. 
you know the truth. What's true for you? One of the mantras, one of the slogans of postmodernism is, what's true for me may not be true for you. You know? And then we have today people who bring that out and it really comes out into our society with the pro-homosexual movement, and I want to be very straightforward here, they say we're born in two sexes, but you can pick your gender, and of that, the last count, there was about 34 different genders you could pick. Really? They say you don't have a sexual identity, you have a gender identity, and you can get, on Facebook, you can pick all kinds of things. You can be, oh, never mind. I don't want to get gross. <laughs> My point is, in a postmodern generation, no, nobody's wrong. Nobody's wrong. And the only people who are wrong are people who say somebody's wrong. <laughs> How ironic. We've gotten to the place where everybody's right, but nobody's wrong, and the only people that are automatically wrong are is anybody who claims to make a truth claim. And they say, if you're so arrogant as to make a truth claim, you're automatically wrong. As if that isn't an axiom in and of itself, you know? Isn't it hypocritical for a postmodernist to say anybody who says there's a truth is automatically wrong? Who made up that one? And that's what's, that's what's so foolish. But we do have to understand these ideas exist out there. And if you don't think they've affected the church, you're sadly mistaken. There are people willing to accept that all kinds of contradictory doctrines can exist between people. And we can have unity and diversity just as long as nobody is so arrogant as to step up and say, that's wrong. Because the minute you do that, you're arrogant. You believe you, are you inspired? I've had people say that. Are you, I, I believe this is the truth. And they say, are you inspired? How do you know that you know that that's the truth? I say, because I got common sense and can read the Bible. And that is the problem here today. It used to be you could have a religious discussion and it made a difference. Today, nobody cares. All they do is say, what's true for you may not be true for me, and that's fine. There's a problem with that. God. <laughs> God has something to say about this issue. And he says, I want, and I knew this age was going to come, and I want the church to accept its responsibility, that of being a pillar and support of the truth. The truth. Now, brethren, you and I have a responsibility to get to know our Bibles to the point that we can not only know the truth, but we can know that we know the truth. We can know that this is pleasing to God, and we know that that is not pleasing to God. We can make a distinction between good and evil. We can make a distinction between right and wrong. Christians, you just can't be, well, I just don't know anything. Well, then hush if you don't know anything. But the Bible is given to us so that we'll know the right path to take, so we can know what it is to walk in a way which is pleasing to God. If that's not the Bible's task and the church's responsibility, then what are we doing? What are we doing? The Bible tells us in a postmodern age, if there's anybody that should claim to know the truth and be able to defend it, it should be the church. It should be the church. We've got to get back to apologetic preaching. We've got to get back to knowing our Bible. We've got to get back to being able to say, it's not because I just feel this. It's because the scriptures say, or thus saith the Lord, or here is what is revealed to us. The first question people ask is, how do you know that the Bible is true? Well, that's a good question, and you need to be able to answer that. How do you know the Bible is true? Well, tonight, that's not my lesson. Believe it or not, I really, I really want to get there, but I'm, I, I just want to tell you if, you, if you have a question and you wonder whether the Bible is true tonight, come talk to us afterwards. We'll talk about fulfilled prophecy. We'll talk about claims of truth in the scriptures. I will tell you, if you want to just do some research on your own, go to apologeticspress.org on the internet. 
And there you will find document after document where people examine the scriptures about whether Jesus was a Messiah and whether he fulfilled them or not. That's what Paul did. He went everywhere proving, proving, that's what the Bible word is, proving that Jesus is the Christ. And he did that by going to Old Testament prophecies about who the Messiah is. And then he proved that Jesus fulfilled it. They are they which testify of me, Jesus said. And that's what I'm saying. Faith has evidence. There's scriptural support for who Jesus is and who he claims to be. I don't know about you, but I remember the day I made my faith mine. My father was an evangelist. But I knew that sitting in a church didn't make me a Christian just as much as sitting in a garage didn't make me a car. I knew that. And I had to make my faith my own. And so I got out the scriptures and I decided to study Messianic prophecy and whether Jesus really is who he claimed to be. And I studied with a friend of mine, Smith Bibbins, out of Ozark, Missouri. We studied a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. If you ever get a chance to read it, read it. It's a good book. And it convicted me. And it brought me to that question we said last night. If there is no God, nothing matters. If there is a God, nothing else matters. And my friends, we need to stop living like we, if you really believe it, then get in. Jump in with your whole body, soul, mind, and spirit, because you're just playing games if you're not. So, the church needs to be the pillar and ground of the truth. We live in a day of lies. People have agendas. They lie to us. They try to wear cloaks of authority. And they try to say things, trust me, I'm not a crook. That's what politicians say all day long. That's what everybody wants us to believe. Take this, it won't hurt you. How do we know spiritually what is right? My friends, the Bible says, though we are an angel from heaven, teach you any other thing than that which has been delivered to you, Galatians 1. Let him be accursed. I can, if an angel was to appear right here, this tool, this God-given tool, can tell me whether that angel is speaking the truth or not. That's right. Even if an angel were to materialize, the Bible says, if he doesn't speak exactly what has been revealed, he's a liar, don't trust him. Is he celestial? Is it a miracle? Yes. If he doesn't speak the truth, it's a lie. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. The Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion. The Holy Spirit will not make a woman a preacher. 1 Corinthians 14. Because the Bible says it's a shame for a woman to speak in the church. But the Holy Spirit made me do it. Really? Really? There's a girl who's a preacher in a church in South Nashville, in a Churches of Christ, who got up and gave a lesson she said the Holy Spirit worked in her life to bring about the point that she can be a minister in the churches of Christ. How can that be? Well, she cited another authority other than the Word of God. She said that she was led by the Spirit. My friends, the Bible says, try the spirits, whether they be of God. What do we try them with? The Word of God. I want you to remember this little aphorism, if you will, this little statement. I want you to remember it as you go tonight. The truth is the truth, even if no one believes it. And a lie is a lie, even if everyone believes it. It doesn't matter how many people buy into it. Well, Glenn, how can this this religious statement be wrong. Look how many million people follow it. God says, broad is the way that leads to destruction and straight and narrow is the path to righteousness. Now my friends, there are popular movements out there, but that doesn't mean Jesus is at the head of the line. And that's what we wanna know tonight. I, I, if we're gonna uh, decide truth based on popularity, well, we're losers tonight. <laughs> We're losers, if that's the criteria. But that's not the criteria, folks. Jesus was the Son of God. They killed him because he wasn't popular. 
That's right. He wasn't popular, but he was right. He was the son of God. He spoke the truth. He offended many. And he died. If you are the son of God, come down from there. Then we'll believe. If one rose from the dead, then we'd be sure to believe him. No, that didn't happen either. The whole point is, the truth is the truth even if no one believes it, and a lie is a lie even if everyone believes it. Now I want to go to an Old Testament story to illustrate our principle tonight, and then we'll be done, hopefully in a short amount of time. But there is so much about postmodernism in this Old Testament story that we just have to look at it for a little bit. It's found in 1 Kings, if you will. The tragedy of a lie told or believed in 1 Kings chapter 13. Now I want you to turn over there, if you will. I alluded to it at the end of last night's lesson. So we're tying them all together tonight. But before you, we get into really a study of chapter 13, I really want to start, the story starts in chapter 12. The story starts in chapter 12. Here, King Solomon's son is about to get the throne and he calls for counselors. He said, what, how should I reign with the people? How should I govern the people? And you know what? He consulted, verse 6, with the elder, chapter 12, verse 6, 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 6. King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, How do you counsel me to answer this people? And they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today, and will serve them and grant them their petition, speak good words to them, they will be your servants forever. But he forsook the counsel of the elders, which they had given him, and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. So he said to them, What counsel do you give me that we may answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put upon us? And the young men who grew up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you shall taste of this people who spoke to you, saying, Your father made your yoke heavy, now you make it lighter for us. But you shall speak to them, saying, my little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Now, he got two diametrically opposed answers. He talked to the older people and said, listen, your father was building the temple. We all understand the taxes and the heavy burden, but he's, he, you know, he's got that all done now. Why don't you lighten up? And serve the people. They're the ones that are blessed. Serve God. But then he asked his friends. Now his peer counselors weren't very helpful upon this occasion. They did not give him wise counsel. They said, look, you're the king. You're the, sons. you're the son of the king. Who are they to ask for a lighter burden? Say, my dad whipped you. I'm going to whip you with scorpions. So what did he do? He told him that. I'm not going to go the whole story. You can read the rest of it for yourself. He did that. And what did Israel's response? To your tents, O Israel. And the ten northern tribes separated themselves. And they went off. They said, no, we're not going to have this guy rule over us. Well, then what did he do? Well, the northern tribes, oh, Rehoboam the son, uh, they were going to fight him and everything. And God said, you must not go up, verse 24. We want to read all that. But anyway, verse 25, he built Shechem in the far country. Now, we alluded to that last night. He built two holy places in the ten northern, says, uh, northern area with the ten tribes. He said, I don't want them going back to Jerusalem. They might turn back to the king. So in order to keep everybody up here, let's create two holy places. And at the same time, the feasts to Israel that were called to go to Jerusalem, we're going to have them come to these idols. And so that's what he's going to do. So, so it's too much for you to go up. Verse 28 is what we alluded to last night. It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. And so your gods, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he made mountains on the high places. Okay. In verse 33, the new king of the ten northern tribes decided that he was going to inaugurate this new form of worship. So in verse 33, he said, he went up to the altar when she had made on Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month 
even the month of which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. Now there came, verse 13, let's go right on into the next chapter. Now there came, behold, there came a man of God from Judah. That's the two southern tribes that remained loyal to the city of Jerusalem. He said he came from Judah. And he says, by the word of the Lord, saying, while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense, and he cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, behold, a son shall be born of the house of David, Josiah, uh, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the place, on the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And then he gave a sign that same day, saying, This shall be the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be split apart, and the ashes which are on it shall be poured out. So this prophet shows up while the king's up there, and he said, I want you to know God is not happy. And those high priests, this fake priesthood you've got going on here, this fake religion that you've started, that this very altar is, there's going to be, those priests are going to be burned on that altar. And to prove it to you, God's going to perform a miracle. He's going to burst this thing in half, and he's going to spill the ashes out. God's going to do it. God's going to do it. Well, what did the king do? And now, verse 4, Now when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar in Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! But his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not drop back to himself. I want you to get the picture. Isn't this a, it's almost like a movie, isn't it? The king goes, seize that guy. Seize him. And then he couldn't draw his hand down. Well, that's just great. When I get home, my wife's going to use me for a towel rack. His hand's sticking out there. He can't bring it back. And all of a sudden, he's realizing he spoke against a man of the Lord. You know? Fake religion's okay until you start dealing with the real truth. And this guy realized he had messed with the wrong God. That's what he had done. And now his hand's sticking out there. Notice, the altar was split apart, and the ashes were poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word Lord. My friends, this didn't happen with this guy walking up there and hitting it with a sledgehammer. In order for it to be a sign from God, God's the one that did it. God smashed that altar, and the ashes were poured out, and everybody knew, whoa, God is not pleased with this. God is not pleased. The king's still standing there pointing. Notice, the king said to the man of God, they seized him, they brought him up to him. The king said to the man of God, please entreat the Lord, your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord. And the king's hand was restored to him, and it became as it was before. Now, all the people knew that this was a lie. The king now knew he had done wrong, and that who the true God was, his hand was restored to him again. And now he's going to have to deal with something. So he wasn't going to necessarily change his ways, because that was political suicide. So here's what he said. Then the king said to the man of God, verse 7, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place. Now why? Is it because he's mad? Is it because he's upset? No, I ain't going to drink or eat nothing at your house. Is that just what it was? No, listen to what he says. Four, verse 9, For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall eat no bread or drink water or return by the way which you came. He said, That was part of my mission. You know, I'm sure that that young prophet from Judah, whenever he went up there to Bethel, he went up there to talk against this. You know, I, I'm sure he kind of pondered in the back of his mind, Why did the Lord tell me not to eat or drink? Or go home the same way. I don't know. That's, that's just him. Well, it's the Lord, so I'm going to do that. But then the king asked him, specifically asked him, won't you come home with me? I'll let feed you, let you drink. And he said, huh, I can't do that. The Lord specifically told me, no, I can't eat, can't drink, can't even go home the same way. 
now he knows that he was probably going to be asked that question. The Lord was given, prepared to give him an answer before it ever was asked. But he knew what the answer was. He knew what the answer was before the question ever was asked. And he said, I can't do it. Lord commanded me not to. Lord commanded me not to. So, verse 10. So what did he do? So he went another way and did not return by the way which he came to Bethel. In other words, he headed off another way. Now, I want you to remember, before we go on to the next section of this chapter, that these people up in the north, at this point in time, were still the people of God. That's why their brothers were told not to make war with them. They were still the sons of Israel. And said, don't go fight them. No. But here's what's going on here. Notice, an old prophet lived up there. An old prophet of God was already living there. So I don't know about you, but it came to my mind, why didn't God use this guy? This guy's already a prophet. Why didn't God just say, hey, go down there and interrupt this fiesta that's going on down there. I want you to correct him. Well, probably because this prophet needed to understand that the truth lied down there with those guys that stuck with Jerusalem is probably it. That's why God sent an out-of-city prophet up there to correct him. And this old prophet was still living there. Notice what it says. Let's go on. Now an old prophet was living in Bethel, and his sons came in and told him all the deeds which the man of God had done that day in Bethel, the word which he had spoken to the king. These also they related to their father. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? And the sons had seen the way which the man of God who had come from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, saddle up the donkey for me. And so they saddled up the donkey for him, and he rode away on it. And so he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Now, I don't know if he'd ever caught him on that donkey. I don't know how fast that donkey was going. <laughs> but he knew which way he went. And he saddled it up and he ran after him. And he found him and he was resting. Evidently, the man of God, he said, God didn't tell me I couldn't rest. <laughs> he just told me not to eat or drink and go home a different way. But he didn't tell me I couldn't rest. Well, he was resting. He shouldn't have been resting, but he was. And then this old prophet shows up and says, notice. And he went after the man of God. And he said, come, verse 15. Now notice who it's come from. Notice the request, verse 15. And he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. Now, did the young prophet get more famished? Now as the day is, was wearing on, did he say, wow, this is a greater temptation to me now. What, what, what's going on here? And he said to come home with me. Notice, no, the young man didn't forget. He said, and he said, I cannot return with you, nor go with you, nor will I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. For a command came to me by the word of the Lord. You shall eat no bread, nor drink water there. Do not return by going the way which you came. In other words, he said, this is what the Lord told me. I can't eat, I can't drink, and I can't go home the same way. That was part of the commission to begin with. Can't do it. Sorry. Even though you're an old prophet, you're not the enemy. You seem to be on my side. You're a prophet. You're an older prophet. But he said, no, this is what the Lord told me. This is what the Lord commanded me. Notice, I cannot return. Verse 18, and he said to him, he's talking about this older prophet, if you will. And he said to him, I also am a prophet like you. Now, I'm not your enemy. I'm a prophet like you are. I'm in the same business. Same business. Same God. Same God. I'm an old prophet just like you. And an angel spoke to me by the word Lord. The word angel here means messenger. So he said, an angel spoke to me by the word Lord. He didn't say the Lord said it. He said an angel. An angel spoke to me and said, uh, by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. And friends, the Bible tells us sometimes about things that a human book wouldn't tell us. If the Bible was written by humans, we probably wouldn't include good people acting badly. 
Peter denying Christ and other kinds of things. But this is an old prophet, and it records the lie he told a younger prophet. He said, but he lied to him. He lied to him. So how, what was the effect of it? What was the effect? So he went back with him and ate bread at his house and drank water. Now, my friends, did that younger prophet know the truth? He knew it. He's already recited it twice. He said, I can tell you what the word of God says. I can tell you what the word of the Lord says. And then this older prophet said, but a messenger, an angel came to me and told me, it's okay, you just come on back and eat bread and drink water at my house. But he lied to him. Verse 20, now it came about as they were sitting down at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. This guy really was a prophet. The old liar was a prophet. The word of the Lord came to the old prophet. Notice what it says. Who had brought him back. And he cried to the man, verse 21, of God that came from Judah saying, Thus saith the Lord, because you have disobeyed the command of the Lord and have not observed the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but have returned and eaten bread and drunk water in the place which he said to you, eat no bread, drink no water, your body shall not come to the grave of your fathers. In other words, boy, you're not going to make it home. You're not going to make it home. Your body is not going to go back to the land which you came out of. You're going to die. Verse 23, and it came about after he'd eaten bread and after they had drunk, he saddled the donkey for him and the prophet who had brought him back. And when he had gone, a lion met him on the way and killed him and his body was thrown on the road and with the donkey standing beside it and the lion also standing beside the body. Now here's, get the picture here. By the way, lions don't usually kill unless they're hungry. And here's a weird little sight. A lion comes down, kills a man that's on a donkey, and everybody stands around. Here's the lion. He's standing there. The donkey's standing there. The man's body there. The lion's not eating anything. The lion's not chewing up anything. This doesn't make sense. Lions only kill when they're hungry, unless God told them. But notice what happened. Verse 25, and behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown on the road, and the lion standing beside the body, and they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. Hey, guys, this is the weirdest thing I ever saw. A lion killed a man, stood there, didn't chew on him, didn't kill the donkey, and everybody's still standing around at the scene of this accident. Everybody's just standing around. Weirdest thing I ever saw. Notice. Now when the prophet, verse 26, who heard, who brought him back from the way, heard it, he said, it is the man of God who disobeyed the command of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has given him to the lion, which torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. And he spoke to his son, saying, saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body, thrown on the road with the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. And the lion, notice the Holy Spirit records for us, and the lion had not eaten the body nor torn the donkey. In other words, God wanted everybody to know this was a judgment from God. It wasn't because a lion wanted a snack. This was from God. So the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on a donkey and brought it back and came to the city of the old prophet to mourn and to bury him. We're going to stop right there for a minute. We're going to draw some conclusions. And then I want to read the rest of the story. I'm not Paul Harvey, but I'll tell you the rest of the story in just a minute here. I miss Paul Harvey. I don't know about you, but I, I really like listening to him. I want you to learn something from, from all this. This is a scary story. This is one of the scary parts in the Bible. Because what it records is a qualified older prophet lying, lying to people. I don't like to read about that. 
makes people wonder if I'm a liar. Glenn, you're an old prophet. You've been preaching for 40 years. Yeah. And I want to know tonight, how do you know I'm telling you the truth? I think I could say an angel spoke to me. He told me it's all right. You say, I read the word of the Lord. It said, don't do it. And I say, but the Lord told me it's okay. And you believe it. And you believe it. You see, that's what I'm talking about. It's a credibility question, isn't it? Who's speaking the truth here? The old prophet should have been speaking the truth. He said the angel was from the Lord. But he lied. He lied. Who should that young man, that young prophet, who should he have listened to? Well, he already knew that the message that he had received about eating and drinking and going home a different way was from God because the very reason why he was up there is because the Lord sent him. And the Lord said, here's what I want you to go. Here's the conditions I want you to go in. And I want you to come home a different way than you went. In other words, I want you to understand this is all about me telling you what to say and do. But he didn't do that. He finally believed the old prophet. He stopped, he ate, he drank, he died. He died. Why did the Holy Spirit include this in our story tonight? I believe it's for our age. There's a lot of people who believe prophets rather than the Bible. And I want you to know the church is subject to the Bible, not the Bible subject to the church. Amen. The Bible not only tells us the truth, it tells us what churches are preaching and teaching the truth. Even though they claim to be part, teaching part of the truth, they don't teach all of the truth. They don't even try to teach all the truth. They're happy with teaching just what they feel the truth might be. But my friends, but they lie to him. Sometimes we don't understand. You can't, both things can't be right. Either homosexuality is a sin or it's not. Tonight. Last night we talked about all kinds of sins. We talked about propensity. We talked about genetics. We talked about how we can excuse ourselves in every way possible. And I know some ex-homosexuals in the church. I know some ex-liars in the church. I know some ex-angry men. I know some ex-thieves. I know some ex-bank robber, as I told you last night. I know ex-all this. You know, there's not a sin. But God looks at all of us and says, repent. He doesn't say, oh, that's all right. He says, repent. Repentance is necessary. We've got to change our life. We've got to deal with our inclination to sin. And I don't believe it's hereditary. We've got to deal with our lusts. We've got to deal with deceitfulness. We've got to deal with lying, cheating, anger. The Bible says, the anger of men does not work the righteousness of God. I don't care how angry you might be. I don't care how tempted you are and how covetous you might be. The Bible says, you've got to repent of that sin and change the desires of your heart and follow after pleasing God. That's all of us. All of us here tonight have got to deal. Now, it might be easier for some. Some people have no problem with same-sex attraction. Other people do. Some people have no trouble with being a thief. Other people do. Some people have no, I've known people who wouldn't ever, uh, you know, they wouldn't ever steal. And they wouldn't ever believe that homosexuality is right. But they'll lie to you all day long. They have trouble with telling the truth. You see, what may be strong and weak to you is not strong and weak to others. That's why God designed congregations. So we can bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. That's why whenever I'm weak, someone else is strong. And whenever my strengths offset somebody else's weakness, and we bear one another up, and we help each other spiritually succeed, why God put us in the body. Come back tomorrow morning. We'll talk more about that. But here, my friend says, I'm telling you something true. Just because we have weaknesses, just because we're hungry, just because it's been a long day, 
And because we're on our way home, that's no time to disregard the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is what we've got to follow. And we've got to know it. And even if an old prophet was to come and tell us something, we've got to remember the truth is the truth, even if no one believes it. And a lie is a lie, even though everybody believes it. Now, for the next five minutes, I just want five more minutes. I want to tell you about the plan of salvation that God reveals in his word. He tells us in Hebrews 11 verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Notice that promise is to those who diligently seek him. Not seek to justify themselves. Seek what is pleasing to God. That's what the word of God does for us. It tells us how to seek God, how to find him, how to obey him. And so in our faith, we repent of our sins, Luke 13, 3. Because we discover that Acts 17, 30, Jesus Christ came and commanding all men everywhere to repent. Yeah, that's the hard part. God tells us all, I don't care what you want. This is what it takes to please me. And my friends, religion is not all about you. It's all about him. It's all about him. He's the one who died for us. He's the one who saved my soul. So I repent of my sins because I can't go to heaven considering that I might desire to continue doing those things which cause Christ to die. Jesus said, you're not bringing any of that up here. You've got to repent of your sins. Repent. That's what God says we've got to do. And then we need to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, in the time of Christ, that was hard. That got you kicked out of the synagogue, got you disinherited. Read the end of Hebrews chapter 11. You joyfully re received the, the seizure of your property. They lost their heritage, which had been in their family for hundreds of years because they confessed Christ. Jesus said, you confess me before men. First John says, if you don't believe Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, you're none of his. Oh, man, that's a challenging path. They had to believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and God wants us to confess that. Good confession. First John chapter 4. <clears throat> Whoever confesses that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that's what we've got to do. So are you willing to confess that tonight? Well, Glenn, how do you know? I've just told you several passages. First John 4. Luke 13, 3, there's all kinds of back. Acts 17, all these passages teach us that we need to repent of our sins. And then we confess Christ before men. Romans 10, 9, 10, Matthew 10, 32, it's in the Word. I'm not expecting you to trust me tonight after teaching on a lie and a prophet. <laughs> I don't want you to go away and have the Lord say, you believe lie, you're not going to make it to the grave of your fathers. Tonight, I'm not trusting in my own wisdom. I've, said, I've shared with you the word of God. And I encourage you to obey it, not me. I'm not asking you to trust me. I'm asking you, like the Bereans, to go home and study to see whether these things are so. And don't take it because of convenience. You know, whenever it comes to the Lord's Supper, people have changed it all over today. There's some churches. Did you know there's a bait going on right now as to whether to keep the Lord's Supper at all in some churches? Some are saying, as often as you do it, well, our church, that uh, there's a, a mega church in the Oklahoma City area that's decided they're not going to have communion this year. They decided that because it's inconvenient to them. Everybody wants the concert. So they come and get the, the music, they give the tithes, and they go home. That's about it. Church.tv, you go. But my friends, whenever the church at Corinth needed to be corrected, what did he point to? He said, the, what happened on the night that Jesus was betrayed? Do that. Do that. Do what Jesus did. This do. Somebody says, that's inconvenient and unsanitary. 
That's not why we change baptism. We don't change baptism, do we? Some people say, well, it doesn't matter. You know, just water. Let's just sprinkle around. I remember talking to a, <laughs> a good friend of mine. There were about five preachers that came out of my class in high school my, my, uh, in my same area. And I said, what do you need to be an evangelist? He said, all I need is a Bible and a squirt gun. You believe in Jesus Christ? Yeah, so we'll stand there while I baptize you. Squirt, squirt, squirt. That's not baptism. Sprinkling. Well, you say, look, the Bible says it's a burial. Romans 6 says it's immersion. There's some symbolism here that's destroyed whenever you just use a squirt gun. Right? Well, the same thing is true with communion, my friends. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 says, We who are many are one, for we all partake of that one bread, that one loaf. And he said, there's a beautiful picture here. And I don't want you messing it up for your convenience. There's a beautiful thing here. I'm not telling you tonight to trust me. I'm telling you, read your Bible. Because that's what's going to be used. Jesus said, my word will judge you in that last day. So tonight, what does it take to please God? I'm not saying trust your feelings at all. I'm addressing your head tonight. I'm saying the word of God teaches you, you have to have faith to please God, Hebrews 11 and verse 6. You have to repent of your sins, Luke 13, 3. You have to confess Jesus Christ's name before men, Matthew 10, 32. You have to be baptized for the remission of your sins, Acts 2, 38. It'll save you, Mark 16, 16. It's the like figure under baptism doth also now save us, 1 Peter 3 and verse 21. That's what the Word of God says. And tonight, I'm not asking you how you feel about it. Because I'm telling you what the Word of the Lord says. Now, you can do whatever you want. You can believe whatever you want. You want to be pleasing to a God who took time to write the Bible in the first place. Then you need to know and obey the word of the Lord. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.